How's everybody doing? Good to see you. That is a great event that uh, we have the privilege of, of hosting. Um, I hope you're having a, a great weekend, and um, it's, uh, it's great to be able to, to gather here once again to, to worship the Lord. And if you're a guest here with us, we too just want to say a special welcome to you. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. have been praying that God would just in, um, really impact each one of us here uh, this morning. Well, today we're going to continue on in our series that's taking us through the Gospel Book of John. And <clears throat> this series um, is one that I know I've been enjoying. I hope that you have been as well. And uh, throughout this series, we've been asking one critical question, and that question is, who is Jesus? Um, I want you to think for just a minute about all the questions that you might ask over the course of a given week, or actually the course of a, just even just a given day. Questions like this, maybe you would ask someone, how are you doing? Um, maybe you would ask someone... Or ask yourself, how will I respond to that? Something happens in your life. Or, or a big question, how will I respond to this opportunity? What will I do now? Will I pursue this? Will I pursue that? How will I react to what that person maybe just said to me? Those are important questions. It's said that there's actually about 300 decisions that people make in, over the course of a day. So lots of questions come our way and we end up making about 300 decisions in a day. And it's said that about 10% of those decisions are potentially life-altering. They have life-altering potentially implications uh, for us. Now this question, who is Jesus, it is right at the very top. It ranks right at the top of the 300. And this question is at that crucial level because when you truly know who Jesus Christ is, it really reframes all of life. We said earlier in this series that when you know who Jesus is, it compels you, it leads you, it compels you to want to follow him wholeheartedly. Um, we can all be assured of this, and this is for you, this is for, uh, for me, that if you show up here today and you seek God wholeheartedly, you can be assured, you might be in a place where you'd say, I've got doubts right now. I'm kind of stumbling in my faith. Things aren't going as well as I had hoped that they would. I have, I have some doubts. Rest assured this morning, when you and I, when we seek Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, he does show up, guaranteed. I was meeting with a guy this past week, and he was talking about his life and different things that had happened over kind of the course of his journey. And, and he, he said, he made a statement. He said, when I met Jesus Christ, that's when things really changed for me. He said, I became a different guy. And it was when he began to understand who Jesus Christ is and the motivation of Jesus Christ that it compelled him to want to follow Jesus. And it resulted over a period of time of God transforming his life to the point now where he goes, wow, that was the old me, this is the, this is the new me. You know, you might be here this morning and, and you might be facing some real challenges in your life. Maybe you just kind of, life has thrown you a curveball. And you didn't expect things to roll the way they have. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, wow, I, I'm really questioning even um, my faith. Or you're really pursuing what, what is spiritual truth. I, I, this question would be one that you would really want to ask this morning. Who is Jesus? It's a critical question. But beyond that, you might even ask the question, not only who is he, but how then does Jesus intersect with my life? You might be asking that question as a student, as a spiritual seeker, or as a devoted follower of Christ. You're saying this morning, as you answer that, ask that question, you're saying, I want to be encouraged. I want to be lifted up in my faith. John, the author of this gospel book, makes a defining statement in the book of John. It's in the 20th chapter. It's in verse 31. And, and John writes this. He writes, but these, and he's talking about the, the book of John, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. 
Now, I just love this verse because what John is doing is he's making his intent very clear. He's saying, I'm not going to pull any punches. I want you to know why I'm writing the book of John, and I'm writing it so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. You might have life in all of its fullness. You might experience, get this, the best possible life you could possibly live. You know, when I hear that, I go, I want that. Who wouldn't, right? Today, in the second half of chapter 2, we're going to see a fascinating section of Scripture. But before we jump into that, um, would you pray with me? And uh, let's just go before the Lord. And I like to do this because I really believe that when we pursue God wholeheartedly, He responds to us. And so let's just go to God wholeheartedly in prayer. Maybe that's a new thing even for you. Just take a risk on this one. And let's go and say, God, would you have a word for us this morning? So yeah, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning, and um, Lord, I thank you that you've allowed us to come and, and uh, just join together and worship you today. God, we want to say you're worthy, and Lord, now as we prepare to open up your word, we just want to ask, Lord, would you speak to us today? Lord, I think of those that come here, and they have, they've got a heavy heart. They've had a tough week. I think of Psalm 55. It says, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Lord, that's a good word from you. And Lord, we pray now, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would lead us and guide us, Lord. We really believe with confidence that when we pursue you wholeheartedly, because we've seen it time and time again, you respond to that kind of a prayer. And so, Lord, right now, and I, I would just encourage you on your own church, would you just say to the Lord, I'm pursuing you wholeheartedly for these next minutes. Lord, would you speak to me? And so would you have that simple prayer with the Lord right now? Go ahead. Lord, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as I studied this week, I was really amazed at this passage. Um, the core motivation of Jesus Christ that we'll see in this passage, it deeply impacted me in a huge way, I would say. I want to begin, though, by asking you a question. If you were to narrow down how you would describe Jesus Christ, I mean, if I said to you, just give me three words. What are the top three adjectives that you would use to describe Jesus Christ? What would those three words be? What would you say? What are the top three things that you would say would describe who Jesus is? I asked this question this week to several people, and, and some of the top descriptors of Jesus Christ, I'm going to list them for you, but I was asking, what are the top things? What rises to the very top of how you would describe how you view Jesus Christ? Number one, this is what was said over and over again. Jesus is, here it is. Read my writing. Jesus is compassionate, right? I heard that over and over again. I think of passages like Matthew chapter 17. I mean, now we think of the scene. Jesus is out ministering to people and all of a sudden the people's children start coming up to Jesus and they're around him and they want to be with him. And, and the disciples think, way too important for children. Uh, away from him, children, go, go shoo away. And Jesus says, no, 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 let him come to me. And so the children come to him and Jesus places his hands on them and he prays for them. He has compassion on them. Think of Matthew chapter 15. People, scores of people are bringing the sick to Jesus to be healed. And it says that when Jesus sees these crowds of people in Matthew chapter 15, he says, I have compassion on these people. Without question, a top descriptor of who Jesus is would be compassion. Number two, I heard this over and over again. You think you could relate and agree with this? 
Jesus is loving. Think of maybe the, what could be said as maybe the most quoted passage of Scripture in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Or Romans chapter 5 verse 8, it says that God, what did he do? He demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Before we had anything figured out, Christ died for you. He died for me. Or 1 John 4, 8 just says it, plain as day. It just says it very quickly. God is love. God is love. Top descriptor. The third top descriptor that I heard over and over again was this. God is, here it is, God is gracious. And we see that throughout the, the, the New Testament for sure. And many of you would say, I'm, I can relate to that one. I've experienced the grace of God in my life. I know what I deserve, but God has poured out his, his grace on me. He's been gracious to me. I think of Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus is on the cross and he's been beaten and he's been mocked and he's been whipped and he's been nailed to this cross. The Roman soldiers, they have beat him. The religious leaders have mocked him. And the crowds continue to hurl insults at him. Yet in that moment and in that environment, it says that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. What was he expressing? His grace. Jesus is gracious. If you read through the Gospels, you can't miss the fact that Jesus was gracious. He was a friend to sinners. I mean, there were people that would, would shun certain kinds of people. We see this in our society all the time. They would be shunned, but Jesus would be the type that he would embrace them. He would pour out his grace on them. He extended grace to those who didn't deserve it as well. People said Jesus is compassionate, he's loving, Jesus is gracious. They also said he's kind, divine, peaceful, he's humble. Jesus is a servant. And, and let me just say, I like this Jesus. I, I fell in love with this Jesus, right? I want to follow this Jesus. Yet our text for this morning shows a Jesus that comes across in a far different light from any of these words. Yet when we discover why Jesus acted in the ways in which he did, it truly makes who Jesus is all the more winsome. If there's one word that didn't make anyone's list as a descriptor, a top descriptor of who Jesus is, it would be this word. Nobody said, Jesus is angry. It didn't make the top of, of anybody's list. I mean, think about it for a second. When you think about, a, let's say, a portrait of Jesus, a picture of Jesus, do you ever picture Jesus angry in the portrait? No, Jesus is usually out in the middle of a dirty field, but yet his robe is white and it still is just totally white. It's not dirty at all, right? And Jesus has this well-groomed beard and he has this huge beaming smile, very inviting smile on his face. Do we think anger? No, we don't think that at all. When Christina, my wife, was a child, her grandmother gave her some cassette tapes. And Now, a cassette tape, for some of you, I need to explain this, a cassette tape is a a small plastic thing, plays music after you put it in a large machine. Um, and anyway, there were some cassette tapes. You know how the, the dreaded moment when your parents bring the boxes to your house from your childhood? We had that moment. And so 
Christina's memorabilia came to our house, and the kids were rummaging through the boxes, and uh, they found one of these tapes that her grandmother uh, had given her, and she had kind of forgotten about this childhood memory. But this was a tape from the 1980s, and it was a song about Jesus. It was kind of a lullaby song. I want to actually play a, a clip of it for you. So, yeah, here it is. That's good. We're good. Thank you. All right. Thank you for turning that off. Um, now, that was nice, right? That's safe. It's kind of cuddly, right? I mean, that's a very nice, cute little Bob Bob little lamb song about Jesus. Now, when that song finally ended in our home, I got home and I, that was playing. And, and as it kind of came, finally came to a close, I, first I was like, what is playing? And, and then the song finally ended. And I thought to myself, okay, now, children, go to the couch. I want to sit you down. And we're going to watch Braveheart from start to finish just to kind of even, just to even things out. I want to do war paint, the whole, the whole, I want to cleanse the house, right? Now, the picture that we get of Jesus Christ is far from safe. It's far from Baba, little lamb. It's far from this cute little picture of him. The picture that we're going to see of Jesus this morning, in all of his righteousness, we're going to see Jesus express emotion that is very unlike our typical picture of him. And since this picture is so different from what you and I would typically expect, the crucial question for us this morning is, is why? The crucial question that we're going to go back to again and again this morning is, why? Why did Jesus act the way that he did, which is what we'll see in John chapter 2? Why did Jesus get so angry at this group of religious people? Why did he do that? One commentator said this of of Jesus in chapter 2. They said in the first part of chapter 2, as Steve talked about last week, Jesus turned the water into wine. And he said, so in the first part of of chapter 2, Jesus is the greatest party maker in history. But then by the time we get to the last part of chapter 2, Jesus is the greatest party pooper in history. Now pay close attention to this. When we understand the why behind his actions, it compels us to want to follow him. This is why Jesus was so angry, as we'll see. Jesus saw a group of religious people that had become mechanical at best in their relationship with him. And as Jesus looked at them and looked at what they were doing, he wanted something better for them. Jesus looked at this group of people and he saw men and women and children and he saw that they had lost their focus on what was most important. They'd gotten distracted. They traded a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, the absolute best that they could possibly have for their lives, for something that was empty, for something that was meaningless, a mere ritual. The main point, kind of where we're headed this morning, is this. Sometimes Jesus wants to remove certain things from our lives so that we can experience something with him that is far greater. Put very simply, sometimes we have to remove in order to add. Sometimes we have to remove one thing so that we can add something that actually has significance. Sometimes we have to remove something that we feel is very significant in order that we might have, we more add something that has even more significance. Look with me at the text. John chapter 2 verse 12 is where we'll start. It says, after this, he went to uh, Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. 
Now last week we looked again at the first miracle of Jesus in in the beginning of chapter 2. Now Jesus is transitioning from Cana to Jerusalem. Verse 13, a few days have passed now. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in order to understand this passage, it's very important to understand the significance of Passover. It was a standard procedure for every Jewish male over 12 years old to go to Jerusalem and to sacrifice a lamb at the time called Passover. And after that sacrifice, there was a huge feast of celebration. It wasn't just any feast. It wasn't just a a good cocktail party. It wasn't just, you know, a feast for feast's sake. No, this Passover was a feast that was celebrated in a big way because it celebrated something that was so important to these people, to us. It celebrated the fact that God had rescued these people from hundreds and hundreds of years of bondage in slavery in Egypt. And in the Old Testament, this was God's test of power. It was always what God brought people back to. If there were people that were doubting God, God would remind his followers. He said, but don't you remember in Egypt? Remember when I I brought you out out of bondage? It was a test of power in the Old Testament for God. We see this event, the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, and it says that the people, that they took their best lamb and they would sacrifice it. And after they would sacrifice it, they would take the blood and they would put it over the door frames of their home so that they were really symbolizing on those doorposts, they were symbolizing, hey, we're, we're with the Lord. We belong to the Lord. It says that the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, it says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, meaning those that are holding you in captivity. I am the Lord, verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Now the Passover, know this, it was a huge deal. It was a way to remember. It was a way to honor. It was a way to approach God with reverence and look back and say, Lord, we worship you. Not just because it's Sunday, But they would say, well, no, no, we worship you. We're celebrating the Passover. We're remembering, Lord, you did miraculous on our part. And we can't deny that. You brought us out of Egypt. You did something miraculous in our midst. We know that you did that. And so we come for Passover and we celebrate you. We revere you. We connect with you during this time. But this is the picture that really rocked me this week. Imagine for a second the scene. It's the time of Passover, and scholars believe that there were, get this, two-plus million people that would gather in Jerusalem. I mean, that city would be swelling. Now, just imagine, here it is, the picture. Jesus is walking through the city, and he's observing this holiday taking place. But Jesus just wasn't another guy at this festival. Jesus would be the one who would one day, in his near future, he would be the one who would be the fulfillment. He would be the Passover lamb. The Old Testament had talked about it. It had pointed that there would one day be one that would come and would do that. And all of a sudden, now Jesus is right there. It's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he didn't just say, hey, Jesus is here. No, no, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is here. 
And so now while two plus million people pack into Jerusalem to celebrate God's redemption on their behalf, to celebrate God flexing their, his muscles on their behalf, the one who would be sacrificed once and for all for the sins of the world, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was right there with them. Imagine that. Later in John's gospel, John writes about Jesus' crucifixion that not a bone in his body will be broken. That was just like the requirement for the Passover lamb that we see in Exodus chapter 12. Think about Jesus. Think about what this Passover lamb needed to be. It needed to be a male lamb without blemish, Jesus Christ. Now put yourself in the mind of Jesus. Jesus knows full well that he's come to earth for one reason. And Jesus knows that he's come to pay for the sins of mankind, to be crucified for the sins of mankind. His eyes were always on the cross. Jesus would soon become the Old Testament anticipated fulfillment of the Passover lamb. So as Jesus walks through the city, as he walks through these crowds of people, imagine this. Imagine as Jesus hears and imagine as he sees these animals being sacrificed, knowing that he will be the one who will soon become the sacrifice for all of these people, for you and for me. Do you think that Jesus was paying attention to how the Passover was being administered? Do you think that Jesus really cared how this whole thing was going? He couldn't help it. Jesus knew where it was leading. Look with me at verse 14. It says, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others were sitting at tables exchanging money. In verse 14 we see that corruption has entered the picture. The Passover celebration had become a way for people to make a profit. People would come from great distances to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so when they would get there, they wouldn't bring an animal with them. When they would get there, they would purchase a lamb. But prices for the lambs were way too high. People were being taken advantage of. If you had foreign currency, you were taxed a huge amount just to get that exchanged. There was financial corruption that had come into this, what was supposed to be a reverent celebration of a holy God. What had once been all about worship of God, it had become a place for people to make a profit off the name of God. In a nutshell, the Passover, you could say, had become big business. It was kind of like you might think of how Christmas is even celebrated in our own culture. It had also become this, secondly, the Passover festival had also become very mechanical in a spiritual nature. It lacked relationship. Yet if you read through the books of the gospel, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see over and over that Jesus was incredibly relational. Jesus said things like this. He said, I've come so that you might know the Father. John 17, very relational. Um, he said this in, in John 17. He said, now this is eternal life that they might, here it is, that they might know you. Now what was eternal life? Relationship. That they might know you. Yet they made what had become, what had been a ceremony of worship, of a place, of a time to revere and to connect with God. They had made it into a heartless ritual at best. Imagine for a second if a guy gets all excited to go on a first date with this gal that he's been hoping would go on a date with him for a long time. And she finally says yes. And so he goes out and he buys the best flowers he can find. And he makes the journey over to her house and he gets to the house, he knocks on the door, and she opens the door, and she, she looks great. I mean, she's all spiffed up and ready to go on this date. And, and all of a sudden, though, the guy takes the flowers that he's bought, and he's so excited for the date. He takes the flowers, and he just throws them at her. And then he turns around, and he goes back to his car. He showed up, 
but he never went on the date. Think about this for a second. Millions of people showed up for Passover, the feast, but they left without ever connecting with God. Again, put yourself in the shoes of Jesus. Jesus is walking through these temple courts, but it's not just the temple, is it? It's his father's house. Look with me at verse 15. It says, so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. It says, when, when Jesus, what happened was when he saw what had once been a ceremony that honored the name of God, when he saw that it had turned into what it had, he didn't just sit back and go, I guess times have changed. No, he took fast and he took furious action. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see this over and over again. Jesus, when he would approach or when he would be confronted with someone who was authentically far from God, he would speak to them with compassion. His heart would go out for them. He would speak to them with great love. But then, on the other side of the coin, if Jesus would come across someone that thought that they were religious, someone who thought that they were kind of high and mighty and took great pride in their religious acts, he would be very, very sharp with them, you could say. He really brought the heat with those types of people. Think about this. These are religious leaders. These are religious people. And Jesus didn't just show up and he didn't say, hey guys, this isn't right, is it? Did you guys forget kind of what we do when we come for Passover? Hey, hey lambs, come on, let's get out of here. Baba, little lamb, you recognize me, I recognize you. Come on, let's go. He, he didn't say that, did he? No, no, he, he didn't come in politely. He didn't come in and say, hey, we need to rethink this. You, you, we really shouldn't be doing that. It seems like you're making a profit. Didn't you just take advantage of him? Don't you realize why? We're... No, no, he didn't, he didn't come doing that, did he? No, he came in with, get this, he came in with fury. Jesus came in with, he came in with anger. But why did he do it, though? That's the key question that we have to go back to. Why? Why was Jesus so furious? Why did Jesus get so angry? It was because there was a time when there were God-fearing people, there was maybe a Jewish family that was gathered around and they were watching the sacrifice take place. They were watching this lamb being sacrificed, but as they were watching it, they were thinking to themselves, wow, this is amazing. We're going to sacrifice this lamb. This lamb, in a sense, is going to pay for the wrongdoing that, that we've done. We're, we're, we're sacrificing this lamb. God is going to be gracious to us. And one day, they were looking forward to a day when there would be a lamb, the lamb of God that they knew was coming. They knew that the lamb of God would come, and that would be the final sacrifice. Yet in John chapter 2, we don't see that God-fearing family. We don't see those God-fearing people. As Jesus surveys the scene at the big anticipated Passover feast, he doesn't see them making the connection. They didn't get it. Why was Jesus so angry? They had taken what was worshipful, what was holy, and they'd made it into a marketplace. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus said to the people in the temple, he said, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Think about this. When house of prayer, when you and I pray, what do we do? We we experience connection with God. The temple was no longer that. They were missing it. And for Jesus, an alarm is going off and he's realizing, okay, these people are forfeiting the best that they could possibly have for their lives for meaningless things. They're forfeiting what they could have with me, with their connection with God. And so Jesus clears the temple. He removes them from the temple. 
so that these people might actually find him. To kind of bring this home for all of us, think about this. Jesus, sometimes he leads us to remove in order to add things that are far greater in our lives. I remember as a sophomore in college, and and this was for me, I would still say to this day, this was the most pivotal decision I made in my relationship with Christ. It's still impacting me today. I was a sophomore in college. I'd just come to know the Lord, known him for a couple of months. I was dating this gal that didn't know Christ, and um, I realized pretty quick that she didn't have any desire to know Christ. She probably wasn't going to warm up to that idea. She thought I was a little loony now, and um, it was as though, and I knew this would be incredibly hard, it was as though God was speaking to me, though, as plain as day, and he was saying to me, you need just to let me remove this relationship. You need to let me remove this relationship if you're truly, if you're going to wholeheartedly follow me, if you're going to experience the very best that I have for your life, you're going to have to let me remove this so that I, I can become a part of the picture. It was as though God was saying this, I want you to have all of me. Sometimes we need to remove in order to add. Let's keep going. Look with me at verse 16. It says, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning, and and notice now he doesn't say the temple. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's relational. Think of all that happens in your home. It's not a distant place. No, no, this is my father's house. He's speaking with anger. Jesus drives them out of the temple. You talk about authority that Jesus had. This was the largest and the most important feast for all of Israel. This was their 4th of July and then some. Yet Jesus shuts it down because they were missing the point. This is my father's house. I want you to connect with him, but you're not doing that. And it broke the heart of Jesus. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume you. So the, his disciples kind of have an aha moment. Oh, Psalm 69, we remember David said that. That sounds like, this, well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's having zeal for his father's house. Look with me at verse 18. It says, the Jews responded to him, what sign shall you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Which I don't know about you, I read that and I go, What sign? He just cleared the temple, guys. What more do you want? Verse 19, Jesus responds, though. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, Jesus, again, he had one thing on his mind. He'd come to die so that people could fully experience life. Later in the book of John, chapter 10, he said, I've come that you might have life and you might experience it in all of its fullness. Verse 20, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? What are you you, nuts? Verse 21, but the temple that he had spoken about was his body. What's he thinking about the cross? After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what had been said. It says, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Why did Jesus get so angry? Know this. I mean, it just struck me this week again and again. Why did Jesus get so angry? It was his love. It was his love that motivated. He longed for people like you and me to know him, to get it. Hebrews chapters 12 says this. It says, 
Jesus who for the joy, Pastor Steve talked about this last week, who, Jesus who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. you got to ask the question, though, what was the joy? I mean, what was the joy that caused Jesus to go through the cross? It was, it was you. It was, it was me. It was us. Jesus looked at this crowd of people and it broke him because he wanted them to experience the absolute best life in Christ that they possibly could. C.S. Lewis talked about Satan's desire and how it isn't necessarily to destroy us, but rather, this is brilliant, it's to distract us from having God's best in our lives. Jesus didn't want their rituals, he wanted their hearts. The Apostle Paul, he prayed a prayer for believers in in Philippians chapter 1, and he said, and this is my prayer, and he said, I I pray that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, and then this is the key part, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Meaning, I want you, church, I want my church to go through life, Paul was praying, that we'd be able to discern what is best. You might be thinking right now, okay, I I look at that and I go, wow, if I'm going to discern what is best, I've got to go, wow, I might have to remove this, might have to tame this down in order that I fully get what God intends for me to get. You might be thinking of something right now and Jesus says for you, you know, I've got the best thing for you. I want to remove that. I want to close with, um, with this question. You might jot this down. You might just ask yourself this later on this week. Here it is. Is there anything in your life that is keeping you from God's absolute best for your life? Is there anything in your life that is keeping you from God's absolute best for your life? I need to ask this question this week. And I would say this, ask this question if you are a person who is considering following Christ. That would be an awesome question for you to ask on your journey. If you're a Christ follower, ask that question. Is there anything in my life that that is keeping me from God's, not an average life, but the absolute best life that God would offer? You know, you might be in a situation right now where you'd say, I've got a job and I make a good salary, I make a really good salary. But the personal cost of this job on my family, on my faith, on other things, you would say, you know what, while this salary is great, it actually might be a distraction from what God has that's best for me. You might be in a dating relationship and you're, you're dating someone that's not in the same spiritual front that you are and you're pursuing Christ, but they're really not. And you sort of kind of want to say, well, they sort of are, but you, kinda, but you always hear this voice whispering in your head and it says, please don't compromise don't compromise. I've got something great for you. And you're saying to yourself, no, 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 I, I would rather compromise than be lonely. And so I'm going to compromise. But the Lord continues to come back to you and says, no, 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 don't. Don't compromise. Or maybe for you, for many of us, our kids, we would say we look at their schedules, we look at their school activities, we look at their sporting events, and we're the types maybe that we don't ever miss anything. Right? I mean, we, we try to be there. If there's an opportunity to connect with the kids, we're connecting with the kids. It's kind of, it's actually cool to be a good parent in our generation, which is good, right? But how often then would you say your relationship with God is maybe sporadic? And while connecting with the kid never takes a back seat, connecting with God oftentimes gets pushed out. And times where you just sit down and you open this up and you say on a daily basis, God, God, would you teach me? This is the smartest book on the planet. It gives me wisdom. God, would you direct me today? How is your time of prayer? Would you say that God might be saying to you this morning, you need to remove that in order that I can give you, I can give you what is best for you. Or maybe you would say you're just going through the motions. 
Maybe you would say, you know what, I can actually relate, though we're not doing Passover anymore. Those people came, and when I said the word mechanical, you might have thought, I sometimes treat church as mechanical. It happens regularly. I know where the coffee is. I come down. I get it. I'm I'm good. I just kind of get in and out. I'm good. It's mechanical. Maybe for you this morning, you would just say, okay, why why was Jesus so angry in the temple? It wasn't just because he wanted to lose it. Not at all. It was because he longed for his people to have an authentic connection with him. And so maybe for you, it's saying, okay, next Sunday morning, I'm going to prepare myself. And when I come into that place, I'm going to worship with all I've got because he's worthy. I'm not going to let it become mechanical. You know, if God's speaking to you this morning about one of these areas in your life to remove, I want to make sure that you leave here knowing what he's going to add. And don't forget what Jesus says he'll add. Think about this. His desire, his heart is that we would experience, and this is straight from his word, that we would experience life to the full. Not an average, not a semi-okay, not a decent life. No, Jesus says, I came, I love this. Jesus said, I came so you might experience life in all of its fullness. I mean, think about that. We are a people that has a God that says, I want you to experience life in all of its fullness. A life with no regrets. Let's do this. Let's pray and and let's just ask the Lord for help this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word today. Um, Lord, I thank you that we get a unique look at you in the temple. But most of all, Lord, I thank you for the motivation behind why you got so angry. You got so angry because you long for people to truly connect with you. And so, Lord, I just pray for, first for followers of Christ that are sitting here today. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would touch us this morning. Lord, that you would remind us of what's most important. Lord, that you would allow us to be the types of people that we truly seek you. Lord, that we say, okay, you might have to remove that in order to put that in. I might have to tone that down so that I truly connect with my Savior. And then, Lord, for the person who maybe doesn't know Christ here this morning, Lord, we just pray that today would be the day. And for you, if that's you, you could say, I understand the gospel. Okay, Jesus was the Lamb of God. He died for me. I just want you to know you can cry out to God right now and begin a relationship with him. And it is the most glorious thing you will ever do. So, Lord, we love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.